My first rifle was a 243. Papa gave daddy and daddy gave to me. And they taught me how to shoot with a steady hand. I guess that's something you don't understand. Here we are with another episode of All American Wing Shooting Podcast, and I have a dear friend on, Dan Forster from Georgia, but we never get to see each other in Georgia. <laughs> no, it's a shame we don't. We live so close, but yet everybody's busy all the time going, doing good stuff. I know. Literally, we've, we've had one dinner together with the girls, and that's it. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's a, that's, we need to fix that. I know. I know. So... I really don't even know where to start talking about all the things that you are involved with, with the outdoors. Um, we met through Pheasant Fest, or, you know, with, with um, Pheasants Forever and Quell Forever at NYLC. We both have kids that have been, you have multiple kids that have been on their youth board and your right. son is serving as president right now. And you are actually yeah. at the youth retreat right now. I am. So, I, yeah, I don't know where to start either, but that's that's a good place. Yeah, I, uh, I've i been involved with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever for quite some time, but really my kids, uh, as yours, drew me in. And uh, it's been wonderful for them. It's given me another outlet to kind of give uh, back to them. But it's, it's interesting. The way I got started with Pheasants Forever uh, was uh, through my professional career. Uh, I... Uh, I'm a wildlife biologist by training, and I spent my career working in Georgia as a biologist and uh, uh, spent the last 12 years of my career before I retired just a few years ago as director of the, of the Wildlife Resources Division. So in that role, I actually bumped into Howard at several uh, places because at that time, that's when Quail Forever was, was moving into the South, expanding uh, as part of Pheasants Forever, and I got to work with him. And uh, because of that, uh, I showed him a picture of my precious young daughter at the time in her pink outfit with her nine-foot alligator that she had captured. And Howard said, "Hey, write an article. Uh, if you can, if you can get her to write an article for the magazine, great." So she did. She became involved in Pheasants Forever, and and uh, here I am now, several years later, pretty active on the board for them and uh, just watching them do wonderful things and so glad and blessed to be a part of their youth program still to this day. Yeah, so the cool thing that a lot of people don't know is that PFQF puts the most amount of biologists on the ground than really, I guess, any other organization. Oh yeah, I think they are now the second largest employer of biologists in the country, uh, just behind the federal government. Yeah, that's uh, huge. It is amazing. And the other thing that I'm excited about is uh, folks in the Midwest and other places are very familiar with Pheasants Forever Work, a Habitat organization, all the great things they're doing. But as they have expanded into the South and into the West, uh, in the Southwest, they are going to probably in the next year or so surpass the number of pheasant biologists by the number of quail biologists that they have on staff. They are doing tremendously good and productive work for quail, uh, as well as all the great work that most folks know about 
with the peasants. Oh, can you expand on that? That's that's exciting. Yeah, so so they are taking advantage of uh, federal programs that allow private landowners to put habitat on the ground, uh, mostly through farm bill programs, the CRP programs and all, which which is how Pheasants Forever got started in the technical uh, guidance uh, program. Uh, in order for landowners to uh, enroll their farms, forests, and other places into some of these programs, it takes somebody who knows the programs and how to apply those habitat programs on specific pieces of property. And the federal government quite simply can't handle all that technical assistance. So they have contracted with other entities and Pheasants Forever has been the leader in filling that niche. So Pheasants Forever will contact uh, or contract with USDA to deliver farm bill programs, uh, provide technical assistance to landowners uh, so that when somebody is interested in a program or if they go and do outreach and knock on doors, find folks that are interested in putting habitat on the ground, then these quail biologists uh, can say, hey, I know you've got 200 acres, uh, got 100 acres in corn, you've got an idle uh, corner uh, of your field, we can put that into CRP XYZ program, you can make more money, you can do something for quail, uh, you know, put it, some of it in pollinate, whatever the programs are, they help them farm the farm bill mm -hmm. to add value to their personal farms. And uh, they're doing doing great work with that. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think the word is really out in the South that that opportunity exists. No, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not. The farm bill in the South uh, really was slow to start and catch up with respect to uh, quail work. The first CRP programs that were implemented in Georgia, quite honestly, were tree planting programs that put mm -hmm. some of these fields into pines. They planted them too thickly, there, were, there weren't uh, required thinnings and burnings, the things that quail need in those stands or, or, or they become 30 years worth of desert for quail. And, and it's taken quite a few farm bills to get that reversed, to get the incentives, to get the payments, to get the programs in place that folks can really uh, kind of have their cake and eat it too. You can still have timber management you can still have ag production for profit, but by working around the edges and tweaking things a little bit, you can have great wildlife habitat as well. So a uh, lot more work to do there, but uh, making great strides. Yeah, and if you get to go on a plantation down south that's been managed properly, I don't think there's anything more beautiful than those lines of pine trees and those golden fields and the dogs running. It's, it is magical. It, there's no doubt about that. It's hard to replace that. And, and it's, uh, it's also good to know that the science for managing Bob Whites has never been better. Those, those areas that are basically single species focus is what they are. They're pulling out all the stops to manage for quail in some places where they're, you know, maybe doing predator management, maybe doing some feeding programs, but they're managing the habitat as best they can. The, the populations there are as high as they've ever been because the science is so strong. As long as Mother Nature provides the right amount of moisture at the right times of the year, they have just incredible uh, hunting opportunities, sometimes three, four, and five cubbies per hour of wild birds 
on these beautiful, you know, deep south southern pine plantations. It's pretty cool. That and that's good news because you don't you don't really hear the good side of it. You know, everybody's focused on the negative. Um, so thanks for sharing some positivity about the South and you know, hunting season's coming up. I know people are just itching to get back in the woods and shotguns out and all that. But have you always been um, more focused on upland? For some reason, I was thinking that you also had a connection to um, NWTF. Yeah, so I have not. Uh, I mean, I've always had some connections in, in my professional role with uh, with the agency as director. I, I basically, you know, work with with all the partners. Right. But from a personal perspective, uh, I, I have some pretty targeted interests. Uh, I've always been an upland hunter, love deer hunting, love turkey hunting, love waterfowl hunting. So DU, NWTF, uh, National Deer Association, you know, Quail Forever, all those uh, are, are places that I've always plugged in. And, and as I was kind of moving through my career, there was a time where I spent a lot of time on turkeys. I was part of the NWTF technical committee. Uh, NWTF basically uh, gets biologists from the states together uh, once or twice a year, and and they actually help develop some of their policies uh, regarding turkeys, help guide their research and science, and that's been wonderful for me because through through my career, uh, I kind of started in the first, really the first week I started my professional job in Georgia, I actually trapped turkeys uh, because we were still involved in moving turkeys around the country. Uh, and, and we've come full circle where we've checked that box. Turkeys are restored. They're doing well. And, uh, uh, and that's been great to see. Uh, so yeah, I have been involved in turkeys a good bit. I did my graduate research work on whitetail deer. Uh, I love deer to this day. I'm an avid, uh, deer hunter, avid bow hunter. Uh, and, uh, and I also kind of cut my teeth on, on waterfowl. Uh, first job moved to the coast. Uh, was in charge of a big waterfowl management area, loved it. And uh, I ended up, you know, getting involved in the flyway councils and became chair of the flyway council and sat on the North American Waterfowl Conservation Plan Committee uh, and have, have really dabbled in a lot of international uh, and national work on waterfowl. So uh, I guess you'd say I love a little bit of everything. And that's what, <laughs> you know, I'm a master of none, but I've dabbled in a lot of it but now now my love is i've got a Brittany, and uh i've been taking road trips each of the last uh falls and uh followed her through north dakota and south dakota on the plains and checked off some some habitat and some species i've not hunted before went to wyoming took her there last year and we we found some sage grouse and more prairie chickens and uh i look forward to a lot more uh, trips because uh, I love to travel see new places and hunt uh, hunt birds and, and habitat that uh, I'm not familiar with. That's addictive because I mean it's really what happened to me is I got a dog and I didn't know anything and then I was like well I got to find somebody to help me with this dog because she was a handful and it just opened up so many doors. I, I mean I remember my first pheasants forever I was like this is like Christmas for adults. This is the coolest place ever. Everyone that walks in has got blaze orange on and a dog on the lead. And um, it it was such a special time when JC was on the NYLC. And for people that don't know, 
PF and QF have a very special program for youth. And it's an application process. I think they take about 20 kids across the country. They become part of a youth board and they get real life experience for conservation issues. They come up with solutions. They get massive leadership training. They're very involved with the convention. Um, there's a I guess it's probably the only kids' corner set up at a habitat conservation organization convention with any organization that I've seen um, where every kid that comes through there and and that event is very family-friendly, but they go through a lot of educational uh, opportunities, fishing, like mock fishing and coloring (laughs) and a hunting tent and all kinds of stuff that where they are – taught about conservation on their level and it sticks yeah and and you know what's neat is uh yeah i've had two children in the program and uh i've i've kind of seen some of the kids you know graduate and go on and do other things and the quality of of uh, the kids and the things that they have done is just amazing your jc uh your daughter beautiful daughter saw her recently where she was volunteering her time at a safari club event uh that i was in attendance at and had a chance to catch up and you know was blown away the fact that she i think is president of uh the the student body there at abac where she She was was. and and now i think she's interning in dc herself right she is she moved to dc foundation that's awesome (laughs) yeah awesome and uh my my daughter, uh, she ended up with a wildlife degree, getting a master's degree in communications. Now she works for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, doing doing work for them and having a blast. So, yeah, it's been great to see kids like ours uh, and many others succeed in that program. Well, I think my first connection with Lanier was she was a freshman at UGA, and I don't remember who gave me her number, but said, you should reach out to her. You're so close. You know, we we were living only 45 minutes from um, the university. And she had started a QF chapter there. And so I just reached out to her. It may have even been through Instagram. And I'm like, I am here for you. You don't hesitate to ask for help or anything that you need. And we created such a special friendship through that. And so this day, it's so cool. Like she's married now. She has her own life. She's she's not a kid anymore, but it's hard uh, to let them grow up. Yeah. And uh, she still loves to hunt. And uh uh, she ended up going uh, with us last year. We went uh, went to Africa, and her and her husband and us. And she she loves to travel, loves to do that. But more than anything, she's uh, she she's got a heart for conservation and and leadership. And her uh, alma mater, University of Georgia, is actually going to do a profile on her in their next uh, uh, forestry school magazine based on on her professional development uh, in the last couple of years. So yeah, very proud of her. Oh, I love that. Well, I'll never forget. JC went to the um, Warnell open house. She was like eight years old. And I said, well, let's just go check it out. Like, you know, you got to figure out what you want to do in life, what your passions are, whatever. And it would have been a fun little field trip for us in the summertime. And we went and toured the forestry school and they did um, like fishing for all, the, I mean, of course, all the kids were like high school kids there with their parents, you know, checking out the school if that was really where right. they wanted to apply. And then there was the eight-year-old. Um, <laughs> but she thought it was the coolest thing, and it sparked a passion for conservation 
in her because there comes a time where you just need those, the other outside influences, right? Like we can only do so much. And um, so I took advantage of that and she actually transferred from ABEC this last year. So she'll be starting at UGA this fall for Ag Econ. And, you know, she didn't find her home at, at Warnell, but she's still there. You know, she's still in conservation. She still has that passion. And so I'm just so glad that they've found their own niche. Yeah. And and they need to, because there's, there's so much out there. I mean, there's not just one path and, and uh, you know, the, the steps that y'all have taken with her to expose her to many facets of conservation is, is important. Uh, You know, the NYLC is, uh, is actually in Georgia. Uh, right now this week. I am uh, part of the host family down on St. Simons Island in Georgia. And uh, this morning I had a chance to go out and do a, uh, a sample fish trawl, which is part of what the DNR does to assess their shrimp stocks, to set shrimp seasons. And, uh, you know, it, it what it did is expose them to a, a whole ecosystem and aquatic uh system that that they might find their way into through a love uh but they they're getting exposed to different things and you know if it sparks something different in them to take a different route or they learn something that they can help others with then uh you know that's incredible and i think in two weeks uh, a subset of that group is actually going to washington dc to meet with each one of their delegations they're both senators Mm -hmm. and house members to talk about some of the priorities of pheasants forever and quail forever. So they're going to get a dose of the political uh, side of reality, which is so important. Uh, so all those exposures uh, are, are just incredibly valuable for those folks participate. I know we've had a fortunate path to get to see really what um, the habitat conservation organizations do behind the scenes. But uh, if you just become a member, because like you're, a crazy duck hunter and you absolutely love ducks so you join du you know but you don't really know what they do behind the scenes or safari club like with sci they've got um a whole attorney staff on site in dc constantly fighting for gun rights and hunting rights across the country and then they also are worldwide organization yeah. and yeah. then you've got pfqf all the time fighting for more habitat that benefits so many different species so I just have it like in the whole um, purpose of of starting this podcast was to get people on here that have been a positive influence on me that have opened doors for me, which really have opened my eyes to see just how vast the outdoor industry is, because you don't know until you know. And it was very overwhelming for me when I figured out that the people that you're hunting with in the field are the people that are keeping you able to go hunt, right? So they're fighting right. for the laws, they're fighting for properties. And so um, I just wanted to share that with people that there's so many places to get involved. And if you just hunt and you, you're missing really the most rewarding part of the outdoors. Yeah, yeah, I would I would agree with that. And and it's, it's probably more important now than ever uh, to, to get engaged, particularly with respect to the R3 movement, right? The recruitment, mm-hmm. retention, and reactivation, because, uh, you know, the, as the human population continues to grow, uh, you know, we're becoming a smaller percentage of the population at large. That is, we being hunters. And, uh, 
you know, there's not as many people now as there were two decades ago that grew up on a farm that hunting was just natural for them. There's more and more and more people that have interests, but don't ever get an opportunity to express that. And so uh, lots of programs that are out there designed to recruit people are, uh, are out there. The, the, the conservation community is working harder to kind of bridge the gaps and make those opportunities, which is another place I get to work with Howard Vincent, the president uh, and CEO of, of Pheasants Forever is Howard and I sit on a board with about 30 other people uh, it's called the Hunting and uh, Shooting Sports Conservation Council. And it's made up of state agency directors, uh, Ducks Unlimited CEO, Pheasants Forever, SCI, Congressional Sportsman Foundation, the who's who of the conservation world, all meeting together for the express purpose of uh, facilitating and coordinating the growth of hunting and shooting sports. So we're not siloed like we have been many times in the past mm -hmm. you're doing a program i'm doing a program they look very similar let's kind of work together how do we share numbers how do we share successes how do we uh model successes and it's been it's been a great forum and from that i can tell you every state every organization has opportunities and need for folks to get plugged in yeah, absolutely. And that is the really cool thing about every organization has their niche and their specialty. And so, you know, as a duck hunter or an upland hunter, you can't really just sell out to one organization because we need all of them. Oh, we do. We do. I, I mean, it's it's just like God's creation. You know, we may not know uh, what bird's feeding in what part of the canopy, but I promise you, there's uh, a place for everyone and there is some overlap, but mm -hmm. uh, there's no doubt there's things that SCI does that NWTF couldn't do as well. And there's things that uh, National Deer Association can do that uh, quality whitetails maybe not be able to do. And, and you know, regardless of whether your interest is in policy, recruitment, habitat, there's there's lots of ways that you can add value and and give a, you know give a boost to the community at large because there there's certainly lots of threats out there and the times are great now but uh, we just don't have to look very far across the big water to see uh, many countries where what we're talking about here the hunting opportunity for all the common person the public at large you know the freedom to own firearms to be able to, to access public property to harvest critters freely is is not something that the world enjoys much beyond north america and it's just a tremendous blessing and certainly worth preserving oh yeah and i call um that whole speech right there the heart of the american hunter is that we are special and that should fuel us to fight for it Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, uh, since I've retired, I've, I've uh, had the privilege to, to go and do some policy work for the Archery Trade Association. Uh, I do the government relations work. And what's been neat about that is uh, I, I now work for industry, but it's an industry that pays the Pittman-Robertson tax. Okay, the excise tax mm -hmm. on hunting equipment, our bow manufacturers, archery, manu uh, arrow manufacturers, 
anything that attaches to a bow actually is uh, is subject to the PR tax. And last year alone, our industry spent uh, $65 million uh, of our of their tax burden went into the PR fund. And all that goes back to state agencies to do good work. It's paired with the money uh, that farms industry is, is putting into the pot with ammunition and farm sales, uh, as well as your license dollars. And that's what keeps us going. But from a from an industry perspective, you know, there's a lot of folks, myself and our industry holistically are very proud of the fact that we have contributed to the conservation uh, that we enjoy today uh, through this shared partnership. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and just your time, too. Like, you spend so much time outside of your job for volunteer work and, and you know, the boards and things. That's not part of your job. So I just wanted people to hear, I mean, you're kind of the... Um, the set standard because you've sold out your whole life for it not only your career but then your free time and you've kept your kids in it and you've opened doors for them to experience the leadership side that's those little special things until we share what they've meant to us our personal story how we've built family memories these things set traditions that we're going to have with our kids for forever and um I don't, I just can't share enough with, uh, with like our listeners and followers that getting involved with these organizations and, and joining a committee, there's so much reward. This is far beyond the hunting aspect or just hunting camp. And, and you don't have to just have a hunting season. This can literally last all year long. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah. Uh, while I have spent a career in, this uh, industry, if you will, and I've given a lot, I have received multifold greater benefit uh, than I have ever could have imagined for that. It's, uh, you know, my passion has allowed me to make a living, to raise a family, to be surrounded by uh, other passionate folks. And, and that's the reward that you can expect to get yourselves by giving back in a way that fuels somebody else's passion that's that's equally important to them as it is to you yeah and i do think that there is um a false um understanding that wildlife all wildlife biologists are hunters or believe in the hunting aspect and that's just not the case so when when we or I should say not us, just because we know what happens. But when you talk about that, you just assume, especially coming from the South, you just assume that everybody's pro-hunting. And so there are, there are people that are creating hunting habitat, not for hunting. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, again, it's going back to, uh, you know, how we're growing up today compared to in the past. I had uh, my major professor, uh, He he said you know, what we shouldn't be afraid of is urbanization, which is kind of the physical manifestation of, of growth of humans, right? More buildings, more roads, whatever. That's what he would call urbanization. What he said we ought to be afraid of is, is urbanism. And that is a, a profound ignorance of our natural world, having grown up and being isolated in an urbanized environment. It's that thought of mind, the, 
the fact that we don't know where resources are come from or what the value of uh, you know some of these resources are. Uh, if you grow up in a utilitarian world, you think, okay, can I use this today? If not, it's not of any value. And uh, and and it's that uh, that mindset that uh, that is probably our, our biggest struggle to keep our our natural world, our natural systems, and and perhaps more importantly, the opportunities to uh, conserve and use wisely you know, those resources, because quite honestly, in a democratic society, uh, we're all subject to the majority wishes. And we we can point to, you know, problems all across the country where there may be ballot initiatives, there may be political decisions, there may be uh, 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 local, state, regional, whatever uh, uh, ordinances, rules, regulations that are constricting uh, our rights to hunt because there are people that don't view or support them like we do because we're a minority. So, you know, we've certainly got to bring along all those people that that maybe don't hunt, but are open to supporting what we do for all the reasons we know are good, na you know, namely uh, the, the, the funding, but the protectionist aspect that, that hunters and anglers uh, you know, always employ. Right. Yeah. So that's just been a topic that comes up often is the assumption that people in the, in, that work with wildlife are always a pro hunter and it's just not the case. No. And, and one example is, uh, you know, if, if you look, uh, talking about the university of Georgia and the Warnell school, uh, there's many, many, many more wildlife students in the graduate program now than there were 10 years ago, uh, and many more than there, there were 20 years ago. But a lot of them are uh, coming from urban centers that don't have exposure, love for, don't participate in hunting. They maybe have uh, a National Geographic view of what a biologist does, saving the chimps or uh, you know what have you, and, and they want to go and work for a zoo, and 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 there's actually a program in Georgia, the Wildlife Federation, is actually spearheading where they're going into colleges with an art recruitment program for wildlife students, forestry students, and others, so that while they're getting their education about biology or whatnot. They can also learn about the North American uh, model for wildlife conservation funding, learn about hunting, and and ultimately take them on hunts themselves, so that they can be exposed to, and have that love. Because, uh, yeah, it, it's it's a precarious, if not dangerous, thing to have trained professional biologists out there that that don't ever get exposed to that, that may leave with a negative, you know, slant against hunting just because they weren't exposed to that. So it uh, seems like a shame or something different to have to teach a wildlife student about hunting, but uh, that's just the world we're living in right now. Yeah, and it's really easy to uh, just live in your bubble and think and assume that you're in the South or you're living in a hunting community that everybody's like that. I know I took it for granted for a really long time, and I think that's what's fueled me to to continue this career in the outdoors was just that there are people that don't understand the importance 
of this lifestyle. And it's super rewarding and it can be really uh, just emotionally, just the way you want to live your life because of the benefits of it. But when it comes to wildlife and biology and science, there's still a place for it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, you know, the raw nature of hunting, uh, where you actually take an animal's life through that process is, you know, that's tough emotionally for folks to deal with. Uh, you know, it's, it's still something I, I view as very, very personal. Uh, you know, I want to do it as ethically and swiftly and responsibly and, you know, utilize, you know, what I'm harvesting, but, you know, not everybody is cut out to do that. My, you know, in, in, in my personal family, my wife, she's been hunting with us, uh, but she's never harvested something herself. She just doesn't want to do that yet. She has been a great student. She is a great uh, educator of others about the value of hunting, but you know, it's a, it's a personal choice. And I, I wouldn't fault somebody who says, no, I, I, I just absolutely positively can't do that. But what, what, what gives me more problem is someone who says, well, I don't support that. Why? And they can't articulate it, right? It's strictly an emotional and not a logical discussion. And, uh, and oftentimes there's a lot of hypocrisy in those comments simply because they don't understand that at the end of the day, death sustains life in all of society. The, the, the food we eat, the clothing we wear, uh, you know, it's just, it's just, you know, a reality of the natural world and reality of our world. Yeah. Well, I was raised in a family very much like you're raising your kids and it was normal. It was actually celebrated, man. If it was backstrap night, everybody was excited and those were limited, you know? And sure. so deer hunting was a huge part of my childhood growing up. We would spend Thanksgiving at deer camp and it was it was just normal. That was normal life. So it's hard when you, when you're raised that way to celebrate it, to appreciate it, to understand how rare it is and how great it is. Um, and then try to identify with somebody who's not ever walked in those shoes because it's so hard to put yourself in a place of not knowing, right? Cause you can always gain experience. So those people that don't know that are anti, they can enjoy the experience, but we can't take that experience away. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. You know, but one, one of the things I do enjoy doing, uh, is as we're maybe entertaining at home with, with other friends and, and, you know, with, I think Georgia maybe the percent of the population that hunts is is probably between four and five percent. I mean, it's not significant. Hmm. Uh, and so chances are you're gonna you're you know in our circle of friends, there's lots of people that have never had venison or wild hog or quail or doves or alligator or rabbit or snipe or what have you. and uh, and so we almost always, prepare, you know, hors d'oeuvres, uh, you know, with something that uh, they might not have had before. And just to get them to try it, open the conversation. And uh, it's a it's a way to at least engage people that may not otherwise even have a, pl- a, a chance to do that. And more times than not, it's very positive. And I've, uh, in some instances, have opened up a can of worms because they're like, 
can you get me some? I don't want to kill a deer, but can you get me some deer? Yeah. And so, yep. uh, you know, I, I got to make the rounds every year and make sure I, uh, I spread my spoils around to, uh, to others that, that enjoy it, which I'm happy to do. I love that too. And so when I quit deer hunting and sold out to all the dogs and was traveling and didn't have time to sit in a deer stand anymore, I had the teenagers back home that, that were friends, kids or whatever. And I was like, you guys shoot something, text me. I'll tell you exactly what I want. They take it to the cooler. I come home and pick it up. And it was a great thing because I was encouraging kids to still sit in the stand, still be out there. Um, So that's really worked for me because we don't buy meat. We, um, we have our own cows. And so that's been a different perspective too, is being in the hunting industry and realizing how many antis we're up against, right? Because we deal with it every day. It just becomes a thorn in your side really to have to face reality of how bad that is um then to have people say well i just want to go to the grocery store and buy my meat and then understand exactly what that process is and know that they don't understand what they're buying well that just adds fuel to the fire um, of frustration and then to be you know we have cows and so i'm like okay so i can't go and sit or walk through the fields or whatever fair chase hard as heck you know it takes skills right yeah i mean yeah. we we always focus on the fun and the traditions of hunting but the reality is it's not easy no. and on the flip side of it it's okay that we're over here raising cows feeding cows every single day knowing that the only purpose that we're raising this is to kill it and eat it and that's okay but we can't take our bird dogs out there and we can't go enjoy something and celebrate putting food on the table through a traditional, you know, human process, right? That people have done this since the beginning of time, but it's okay to raise something to slaughter. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, people, people just uh, don't get exposed to that reality. And so I think we, you know, we owe it to the community to kind of keep, keep uh, waving that flag. And, you know, I, one of one of the things I have enjoyed doing too is I sit uh, the National Deer Alliance board. Mm-hmm. Uh, the National Deer Alliance uh, is a recent merger of Quality Deer Management Association uh, and the National Deer Alliance. So it's now the National Deer Association, and one of one of the flagship programs. Uh, that came along with that merger was one that uh, the old QDMA started, and it's the Field to Fork program. And essentially, what what they did was was they went to uh, a farmers market where you had a lot of foodies, right? A different clientele right. than you might see at the Buckarama, okay? Uh, and they walked around uh, or had a booth with. Uh, venison uh, and say, hey, you want to try some venison? And so they tried it and and struck up conversations said, hey, what do you think about trying hunting? And uh, they signed up people at those venues. And quite honestly, most of those folks didn't look like you or I or others in our stereotype world of hunting, but they were drawn to it because of their desire for, for organic protein. Uh, you know, in some cases they're like, you know, I've always wanted to do this. I just never had any friends that asked me, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't know anybody does it. And, 
80% of the people that go through that program continue hunting now. Uh, What's that program again? It's called the Field to Fork program. And, and it is amazing. The, the, pro, the challenge we're having now is how do you scale that up, right? How do you right. really, you know, I mean, because it's pretty intensive, but, but, you know, we'll be working on that. There's going to be a lot of on, online uh, and electronic media to help, but it's, it's essentially a program where, uh, and what they use most successfully was actually crossbows because they had access in urban areas. Mm -hmm. Uh, they weren't as threatening to people uh, that were first learning as a firearm. Uh, You know, you you come, you can, you can learn in a, in a, in a, in a day really how to shoot it. And they'll sit up in a stand with a mentor and, you know, have success. And, and some of those stories are pretty, pretty cool, but, but that's, that that, opens up a whole nother world for people because archery is vast with competitions, 3d targets. I mean, and it allows people to do it, like you say, in urban areas. You can literally just shoot Absolutely. off your back porch. Absolutely. And, you know, the equipment today is really efficient, effective, and, you know, it's a great tool, especially for an urban environment. But you're right. You don't need, you know, you don't need your own property to go shoot or have to drive, you know, 30 minutes to an hour to a, a firing range to shoot a fire. You can literally shoot in your backyard or in many cases in basements. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's I it's love that. And I have not heard about this before. Yeah. Yeah. So is it set up like a mentorship program to where you are paired with someone or yes. it's groups so, or. So the way it's been done in the past has been, say you have uh, 15 people, uh, they sign up kind of for the weekend and, uh, each one of those would go out with somebody actually to hunt. It's a. Hey, show up. I don't have any equipment. I don't know anything about it. Uh, you know, get them, get whatever uh, hunter education you've got to have. Uh, you know, Georgia's got a pretty cool uh, law that we put in place about 15 years ago. It's uh, it's where if you buy a short-term hunting license, like a one-day or a two-day or a five-day, you're exempt from hunter ed. Uh, you only have to have hunter ed if you have an annual license. And the purpose is no one's going to just spontaneously say, Hey, I'm going to go hunting today. You know, I don't know anything about it. So most of those lot one day and others are, are, uh, sold to people where, you know, I say, yeah. Anna, you ever been hunting before you go, no, Hey, you want to go dove hunting with me this afternoon? Yeah. Right. Or some you cookout and we're like, we're leaving in the morning. Perfect. You <laughs> yeah. don't have, you know, you can buy a one day license. If you like it, want to go the next day, you can buy another one day. But anyway, that makes it real easy. Uh, so you don't have to invest eight hours just in, in Hunter Ed, but, but you come, you, you learn about deer, about deer biology, a little bit about hunting, but you learn to shoot, you get exposed to the equipment, you get to go hunt and and there's usually somebody that kills something in that group right and they come back so everybody celebrates that you cut you show them how to cut up the meat and you cook it and you eat it and people go wow i didn't know i could do that Mm -hmm. uh you know my friend's got 20 acres i'll bet you he'd let me go hunt you know what was that bow we were using i gotta write that down because i'm gonna go buy one tomorrow 
you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's been super great, but it's, as you can imagine, volunteer heavy, but I think as the association tries to scale that up, uh, the, the, the listeners you have, the, 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 the hunting clubs, the church groups that it would be tailor-made for a group to do their own Oh you know, yeah. Build a program. You pull materials offline. So you've got all the materials. You've got a how-to. You just implement it. And so you maybe 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 you take them to your hunting club or to your land and go, you know, whatever it is. But uh, I, that program has proven successful. Uh, the foodie opportunity is incredible. Uh, the urban opportunities are are incredible. And uh, I, I think that's one that's going to continue growing. Well, as, um, you know, being as, as involved as I am with SCI and stuff, I love the fact that there are lodges, no matter what type um, of lodge, you know, planted birds or high fence or whatever, where people that don't have the opportunity to, to invest the time that we have prioritized in oh, yeah. our life still can get in the outdoors, right? So even if you don't have, like, local land – you still can learn. There's still places for you to hunt all sure. over the country um, sure. with the knowledge that you gain from this. So if we have listeners that have said, man, I really have been touched by your story, Dan, and how much you've committed to the industry and, and the impacts that you make, that they could take this system back. They could be a team building system at their job. Um yeah. You know, for for I, I know that all the guys in the construction world would absolutely flip out to say we could do a team building day about the hunting and just up morale of their whole company and um, yeah. church sure. groups. They're always looking for ways to get men together. And so, you know, and it's not just about men. Women would absolutely love oh, this, absolutely. too. And it's a huge confidence booster. So I think that is great to market to the corporate world of bringing this program in and teaming up with a lodge or something to to host and say hey like you know you don't you don't even have to know anybody you can still go hunting even if you don't have a friend that lets you sit in a tree there's still opportunity there yeah yeah there is no doubt georgia does an excellent job um i just saw sei's um posted that they're doing a learn to shoot event they do it twice a year they also do a youth hunt they do um, a first time hunt for adults um, and our sci chapter and you said that you've seen jc there we've gotten really involved with them and to have this group of people it's like the same people keep coming back yeah. and you get addicted to that first time like watching somebody fall in love with it for the first time oh, and yeah. so yeah and so it just becomes like tradition for us and my real like my true circle of friends are people that i work with and that's been the testament of these organizations that these are my genuine friends that we're you know in the trenches with all the time trying to share the word of how to get involved encouraging others to get involved because we need everybody's voice we we do and i you know i just to put an exclamation point on on you know what you said i yeah i love to hunt i love to harvest things but i i did uh did a podcast uh for dallas safari club uh several months ago and asked me what's your most memorable hunts and and i said i gotta tell you honestly they're where i have taken people hunting mm-hmm. where they were successful not not myself shooting something but 
the hunts come to mind where either it's a family member, my kids, a good friend, where you know I was able to empower them, help them, put them in the right place and witness them experience the joy that I do, you know, right. gave me uh, satisfaction. And that's what, that's what we should be pursuing, you know, as participants ourselves, sharing what we appreciate and spreading, spreading the joy. I, I totally agree. Cause when I started my shooting career, I, I started tournament hunting first before I was ever a hunter. So um, tournament hunting is, you know, we're hunting, planting, planted birds with our dog on the clock and it's a competition. Yeah. And so that opened doors for me to become an actual hunter of the uplands. Right. And that was life changing within itself because it comes with a whole new set of hurdles. (laughs) And then because I wanted to get really good, I sold out to sporting clays and it, and it took, it shifted my entire focus. And I was shooting sporting clays all the time. And my coach would tell me, you're going to go back to the dogs. Like I can see you're not going to stick this out because there's just something about being in the field and you don't get to pull the trigger near as much as you would on a sporting clay course, but there's something about being in the hunting world. And so I, I felt the same exact way. I started instructing. It was all hunters was teaching hunters to shoot and giving them that confidence to say, okay, like I've got over the first hurdle. Now let's go figure out like where the birds are and how to run a dog. And, you know, in this whole journey, you know, when you get them going and they get their momentum going, it's addictive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you've got to, I mean, you've got to be able to shoot to be successful too. I mean, you can't just go hunt without shooting, especially birds. Yeah. Uh, Cause that's, uh, that, that's also some of those challenging times I've had where, you know, you've limited opportunity. The hunting's hard. And then, uh, blisters on your feet, the dog's tongue's hanging to the ground (laughs) and you get a flush, a boom and the bird flies away that, uh, yeah, that could be disheartening too, but that's part of, that's, that's part of the, part of the game and part of the learning process. I know we all crack up. I'll never forget it. The sharp tail shootout. We had the worst luck ever in Nebraska and I wasn't prepared out there and we were um so sharp tail shootout is a, it's a team competition hunt where you have five shooters or six shooters and you can only have like two dogs out at a time but you draw ranches so at the the meeting the night before you draw a ranch your team doesn't know anything you've got a guide that knows the property and you're hunting wild birds and so it's like you're only as good as your guide and your shooting skills, right? So you got to have some really good dogs too. And it was so hot. It was like 90 degrees still late September and everything out there stuck you or bit you. And I wasn't prepared for that. And it, and we we're just like, well, you can't give up. You just can't give up. There's like no way we're going to win. I'll never forget. I had the worst blisters on my feet ever. And, um, and you just keep putting your dog out there and filling up your water jugs every chance you see a windmill, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. and, and I, and I, I drove two days back thinking that was probably the coolest, worst hunt of my life. And I can't, like, I would redo it in a heartbeat. And, and we had, it was kind of embarrassing what our scores was, but we had the most fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. I, I mean, you're going to have fun if, uh, if you're around good people and, and, you know, having a good experience. And, and that just reminds us, it's not about the, the harvest, right? I mean, the harvest is a, is a bonus. Uh, there's no doubt about it, but it's, you know, it's kind of the experience. It's, uh, 
it's a journey and not, you know, not where you end up getting to. Yeah, and we don't really have those types of events in the South, but there there are multiple types of team events like that um, in the Midwest. That was one in, in Nebraska. It's been going on for 30 years or so. There's one in South Dakota that I do with pheasants, and it's been going on for 34 years. And you get teams there that are – guys that grew up together or they use it as a family reunion or whatever. And they, they come 10, 12, 15 years in a row. Like some people say, Hey, we've never missed this. And so there's just other opportunities of getting plugged in and finding hunting, a hunting places, right? Like other places to hunt. Like we, we're fortunate enough to know so many people within the industry. You can just pick up the phone and, but some people are like, I don't even know where to start. And yeah. so the, these events um, open a lot of doors for people and and just create tradition. Yeah. No, it, it, is, it is a great way to get plugged in, there's no doubt. And I think uh, you, you make a real good point that there's a lot of commercial facilities out there that, that, that fill an important role. You can mm-hmm. find places... Uh, and, 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 you know, in the busy world, there's a lot of people I know, they, they call themselves hunters, they self-identify as hunters, they are hunters, but their life's so busy, you know, you say, well, when did you go last? And they're like, well, yeah, you know, we, we did a, you know, we, we did a waterfowl hunt in Arkansas, was it like, no, a year before last, you know, but yeah, we got to do that again. And you get so, you get so busy, mm-hmm. but whether it's duck hunting, uh, you know, bird hunting, whatever. Yeah, you can find place to go, and and your your state Department of Natural Resources, uh, they almost all have facilities and staff people uh, and programs to help you learn how to shoot. Right? It's hard right. to call a commercial operation up and say I'm going to go hunt quail, and you you don't know where to where to put you know the shells. So you've got you you've got to get that. But there's there's lots of opportunities for help there as well. Yeah, and, be- and a lot of those places, too, offer lessons. Um, you just got to pick the right place or, you know, share it. But starting with your sporting clay course and just getting your feet under the belt, having the confidence, understanding safety, and then oh, yeah. moving in and saying, hey, like, I just want to focus on wing shooting. Or um, I know that we have local rifle clubs in Georgia, and I don't know um, – I mean, they all could recommend instructors for what you want to do. Uh, but you're right. Like, I think the commercial side of what we do is so important in today's time that we need to promote them more. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, there's also a lot of public land. For folks that are adventurous, I'm, uh, I, I'm more of a how, you know, do-it-yourself kind of a guy. Yeah. And I have... I've, done some pretty cool trips and i've had some really neat wins and some really tough hunts that uh you know i learned a lot on but but there's something for everybody out there uh i think main thing you've said you know find some friends make some calls figure it out you know if you sit back on your heels and and wish it would happen it's probably not going to but but it's not that hard to uh tap some somebody on the shoulder or make the right call get the wheels going especially with instagram now you know that's just the easiest place well you can find a how-to video to do anything you want nowadays too uh it's it's 
is pretty neat, especially young young folks where, you know, I may make plans to take them somewhere to do something. And, you know, I know they're green. I know they don't have exposure and experience. And they come and I'm just amazed at what they do know because, you know, in, in an hour and a half, you know, research online, they can find lots and lots of lots of materials to help you as well. Well, I know that Georgia SCI, um, well, SCI in general, Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever, and Quill Forever have chapters all over Instagram. So I would recommend if if you're in an area where you haven't figured out exactly who or if your area even has a chapter, just message the national organization's page and they'll be happy to point you in that right direction. Um, They're usually really good about responding. Oh, yeah, and and go to a banquet. Bring a friend, go to a banquet, and Heck you'll yeah. meet a lot of folks. And have a lot of fun. I <laughs> am a shopaholic at, at banquets, for sure. <laughs> oh, that makes it so much fun. Well, I am so glad that we got to catch up and just hear your story. I know that there's so much that you've done and contributed that you didn't even discuss. But I just think that sharing the behind-the-scenes of what the outdoor industry offers is so important because people are missing out on some of the best parts. Yeah. Well, no, thank you for having me. This has been great. Uh, Great to catch up. And uh, let's not wait so long next time. I know. Okay. We'll talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. I guess that's something you don't understand. A grind of soap and a big machine.